You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So there are some things in life that just don't mix, that are not good together. They might be good or useful or tasty by themselves, but then when you pair them with something else, it ruins both of them. So, oil and water, diesel and a gasoline engine, drinking and driving, those are never good together, in case any of y'all haven't gotten that message yet. Toothpaste and orange juice. Yeah, yeah, so good by themselves, useful by themselves, you put them together and they're awful. Uh, Liberals and conservatives. Just going to leave that one out there. We don't need to go any further. Uh, If there's any vets in the room, military intelligence, you know those two do not go together. Stripes and plaids for you fashion folks. Let's see. No, I don't see anybody who's violated that rule. That's good. I didn't mean to embarrass you if you did. Um, French fries and mayonnaise. That's disgusting, people. You shouldn't be doing that. Um, Yeah, yeah. There's no room in the world for that unless you're from Europe. Uh, Facebook and constructive political conversations. They never happen at the same time. Just give it up. Um, Espresso and ice cream. Actually, that that, that is good. That's called an affogato. You can get it at the foundry seven days a week. Y'all should go down there. Try that. But sometimes there are things that you think don't go together that are incompatible that would never mix, and yet somehow they do. So, apples and peanut butter. Do we have fans out there? Yes, all us carb-conscious people, forget that bread. Just go with a little slice of apple. Chicken and waffles. I would have never dreamed that those things taste good together, but they actually do. Bacon with almost anything, so that's kind of cheating, right? Um, Anything with bacon is going to be good. Um, My wife, actually, she dated this guy. I'm glad she didn't marry him. Um, He would mix junior mints and popcorn together when they would go to the movies and kind of stir it all up into this big, gooey mess, which sounds gross, but he thought it was good. I'm glad he's not her husband. Uh, But for lots of reasons, not just because of that. if, but if you grew up in the 70s or 80s like I did, you might remember the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup commercials. Yeah, somebody remembers those. Um, there, there are these things called commercials when we only had two or three channels and we had to watch them. And they lasted 30 seconds, not this four-second YouTube ad. I'm talking 30 seconds. And so these Reese's Peanut Butter Cup commercials, you might remember these, two people walking down the street. They're distracted. They usually had these headphones on that were about this big with an antenna pointed up so they could actually get the radio signal. And they're walking along. And one guy, he's fairly normal. He's holding a chocolate bar as he walks down the street. Now, I've actually seen this, you know, a guy eating a candy bar walking down the street. The other weirdo in the commercial is walking down the street with an open jar of peanut butter. Now, how many of you have seen someone walking down the street with an open jar of peanut butter? I love peanut butter, but I never walk around, walk around my house with it maybe, but I'm never walking around on the street. And so what happens? These two distracted people 
run into each other, and magically the chocolate bar gets mashed into the open jar of peanut butter. And y'all know what happens, right? They say, hey, you got chocolate on my peanut butter. And the other person says, oh, you got peanut butter on my chocolate. And it's magically broken in half, two equal sizes, and they each take a bite of it and they go, mmm. And then the announcer says, two great tastes that taste great together. So that is an example that apparently before Reese's peanut butter cups were invented, peanut butter and chocolate were these two separate things that who knew that when you put them together, they were awesome. So awesome that today Reese's is the number one selling brand of candy and convenience stores at over $2 billion in sales in 2017. So two great tastes that taste great together. And our passage today is like that. It's like chocolate and peanut butter before Reese's peanut butter cups existed. It's got these two things, these two ideas that on their own, theologically, do not go together. But in this mysterious way, through God's grace, when you put them together, they actually turn into something that is awesome. It's actually amazing. Those two things that we normally wouldn't put together are work and salvation, or work and grace. And yet, when we look at the passage today, we see how they actually do fit together and make something new and different and amazing. But here's the danger if we don't put those two things together. If we have salvation and no work, like James said, we have a dead faith. But yet, on the other hand, if we have work with no grace... You're either a lost unbeliever who's not saved, or you're a Christian who experiences no joy, who is always striving to perform, to meet some standard, to obey some set of rules, which is a horrible way to live the Christian life. So where are you on this extreme? Are you on the dead faith side? I hope not. Are you on the joyless faith side? I hope not. hope you're Goldilocks, somewhere right in the middle. So let's examine Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18 today. That's Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. And as I read this, I want you to look for the three combinations of things that normally don't go together. So please stand as I read, beginning in verse 12, Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom... You shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. Please be seated. So before we dig into this paragraph, I want to set some context for us. 
This is an epistle. It's a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And that's a church that he established during his Macedonian mission. It's covered in Acts 16, and it was a very exciting church plant. You might remember some of these stories. So Lydia, the seller of everything purple, uh, she came to faith, her whole house. And then there was a girl who was controlled by an evil spirit who was telling everybody's fortune and people were getting rich off of her. And Paul and Silas cast out the spirit because she was really annoying them. And uh, they got beaten up and thrown in jail as a result of that. And then there's the great earthquake. The jailer thought everybody would leave when the doors fell open. And yet uh, they stayed and that actually brought the jailer to faith. So it's kind of like the White House story, how you guys got started. Um, yeah, so it's a crazy church plant, but it's a church that loves Paul. In fact, they love him so much that they've sent him uh, people to go minister to him three separate times, and each time they've brought a financial gift. So it actually reads like a thank you note. But then also, like most of Paul's letters to these churches, he's heard of some things that aren't quite right in that church, and so he's going to address those as well. And since we're dropping down in the middle of the letter to examine a particular paragraph, let's spend just a minute understanding where this paragraph fits into the flow of this letter. So most of Paul's letters start off with a greeting, and then he has some encouragement, some things that are going well in a church, and then he has a prayer. And in his prayer, he talks about uh, making the case that suffering is not this exception. It's not something that you should be avoiding, but it's actually the norm of the Christian life. And even more so, it's a sign that they have faith. Look in uh, Philippians 1.27, it says, "Oh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then later in verse 29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You know, we often think of the grace that's granted to us when we're able to believe. We often don't think of the grace of suffering, not something that we seek out. And yet, Paul's saying that's the norm. So, chapter 2 starts with this beautiful description of Jesus as our ultimate example of humility and service. So, let's read in verse 5. This is actually an early hymn of the early church. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Every knee, every tongue, 
You, know, you read a passage like that and you think maybe we should just stop there, call it a morning, bring Hillary back up and uh, have communion and go home. But we're actually just getting started. It's the beginning of our passage. Let's start by, um, by wrestling with that question. If what we just said is true, then so what? So what if Jesus was the Messiah, He was God, and He humbled Himself, and He became a man, and He died on a cross? So what? So what if there's a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? So what? If that's really true, then this passage today answers that question. How should the church in Philippi, and how should Bethel White House, Bethel Bible in Tyler, Texas, how should we respond? Let's start our study by reading verses 12 and 13, and we'll see the first of three commands or three examples of some things that we don't normally like to see together. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure." I got to be honest, I see several words in here, and just as a believer and as a preacher, I don't like seeing these words. Words like obey, work, and fear. Makes me wonder why I chose this passage uh, today. I'll tell you the quick answer is, it's a passage that's been on my heart because my son is in basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, where it's hot and people are yelling at him. And I wanted him to do it without grumbling and complaining. And so I quoted this verse to him, and then I'm like, I'm reading, I'm like, oh gosh, this is hard. I really should have chosen a different passage to preach on today. But it's the passage that God's placed in my heart. So even though it's got a bunch of commands in it, we're going to dig in and try and understand it. You know, so Paul starts this church, this passage, by saying to the church that he loves them. He calls them the, his beloved so these commands are not given um, for any other reason other than His love for these people. And this church in Philippi has historically been obedient. So right after pointing out that Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross, He reminds them to also obey. And then says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which is our first example of something we usually don't think of as going together. Work and salvation. So how does that work? Well, for starters, the passage says work out, not work for. Which really has this connotation of making your salvation evident, making it visible, making it obvious to those who would see you. And this is a plural command in the Greek. It's written to this church, so you could read it like, y'all work out your salvation. Bethel Bible White House, work out your salvation. Make it known and obvious and evident here in the community in which you're called. And when Paul uses the word salvation, he sometimes means it in a way that's a little different than we commonly think about it. 
So in our culture, when we say salvation, we sometimes think of it as that moment in time where someone places their faith in Jesus and they are granted eternal life. And that is salvation. But Paul, I think, is using it in the broader context of the entire act of redemption, how God has saved us. Everything from election and predestination all the way to glorification with things like regeneration and justification and sanctification here in the middle. So that's what he means by salvation. So Paul's command is both to individuals, so individual believers, work out your salvation, but then the church as a whole, put your salvation on display for the world to see. But how should we do that? Well, Paul says we should do it with fear and trembling, which really means from a position of weakness. So fear, usually when we're talking about God, is not being afraid. It's really awe and respect. Awe and respect for who God is and what He's done for us. And the, the trembling part really means from a position of weakness or humility or dependence. So it's not Christians who are cowering and afraid like a child waiting to get hit by a parent, but Christians who are respectful, who are in awe of God and who are responding to what He's done for them while recognizing their continued dependence on Him. So how does that happen? Look at verse 13. It tells us, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So even though Paul says work, this work is dependent on God's activity, His grace moving before you. The Greek literally says, the one who works the working is God. It's very clear that this work is actually God's work in you. Paul said earlier in the first chapter, and I'm sure of this, that he who has began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So our sanctification, our becoming more and more like Christ, is dependent on God working in us and through us, and even when we mess it up, when our works fall short, God is going to finish the job and bring us all the way to the end. But not just the work, but it actually shapes our wills. Our wills, our affections, our hearts and minds, those are shaped by God through this process. And even though we are working, it is God that actually wills us or creates in us the desire to work. He works in and through us to accomplish His purpose, all for His good pleasure. Now, I read some commentators who said that this way that God works is kind of like an appliance, say a toaster. And a toaster that's not plugged in is not going to make toast. And so God's power, God working, is the, the toaster getting plugged in. Now, I don't know how your toaster works, but I can plug my toaster in and it still doesn't make toast unless something else happens. And so I think that's kind of where this analogy falls short because that toaster doesn't have to make a decision, do I decide to toast or not? That's not how toasters work. The way God works is He creates in us this desire. He stirs up in our spirit a desire to do things that please Him 
in effect, kind of pressing, beginning to press the lever on the toast to actually make the toaster work. So this is the first command. You could call it kind of the what command. That is, work out your salvation, both individually and collectively as a church, which we'll especially see in these next couple of verses. The second command is really the how command. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So what are all these things that we're supposed to do? What does all things refer to? And I'll confess, I tried to find some grammatical way out of this to where, you know, all things didn't mean really all things. It meant most things or even some things or even just the three things. If like these aren't hard, obey, work, uh, you know, that it would be limited. But it's actually all things like everything. Um, Do it all without Uh, grumbling, or in this case, disputing, which is really arguing. So grumbling and disputing or complaining and arguing, maybe despite some of our experiences, those things do not go together with the church. So here are some examples of things that absolutely do not go together. Pineapple and pizza. I'm sorry, they don't go together. One's a fruit, And the other is all sorts of awesome stuff, and they don't mix. Watermelon and salt. I know that may disappoint some of you. Those things do not mix. They're gross. Uh, Chewing gum and nuts, we covered that. They never mix. Um, And I have a friend that swears that mustard and Cheetos go together, but I'm declaring those things have no place being in the same. That's like an accident when you're eating a hot dog and you realize Oh no, my Cheetos have mustard on it. Um, I'm not going to be trying to put those things together. But then Paul does something interesting here in this passage. He doesn't quote directly from the Old Testament, but he draws very heavily from some Old Testament imagery. He uses the same words in Greek that in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible describe the new nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. That newly formed nation who grumbled and complained against Moses, which was really complaining about God. So in the Song of Moses, which is Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses is describing the previous generation of Israelites. And he says, they've dealt corruptly with him, that's God. Uh, They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and a twisted generation. And so now the church in Philippi by obeying, by working out, by doing all things without complaining and arguing, they're declared the children of God. And they are now without blemish. And they, instead of being a crooked and twisted generation, now they live in the middle of a crooked and twisted culture. These mostly Gentile believers in Philippi is a church founded by a Jew And they are fulfilling, but not replacing, the mission originally given to the Israelites to effectively put the blessing and the working of the power of God on display in such a way that all nations would be brought to worship the one true God. 
so that every knee should bow and tongue confess that the Messiah Jesus is Lord. And if the Philippians would do that, they would stand out and shine as lights in the world, which also borrows heavily from Old Testament imagery, such as Daniel 12, verse 3, that says, And those who are wise, those who follow God, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Which points out one of the ways the Israelites blew it. And it's the same way that we can blow it today. The Israelites began to believe the blessing was about them. That it was about how special they were, how good they were, and how smart they were, and not how awesome the God they serve. It wasn't just enough for them to be separate from the world. They needed to shine in such a way to bring the world to the one true God. And we have the danger of doing the same thing in our culture today. In our good conduct, in our obedience, in our working uh, out our salvation, we begin to think that, you know, hey, we're, we're pretty good Christians. We're pretty awesome We've got this kind of, this Christian life figured out, particularly more so than those other non-Christians or those other fake Christians who maybe just sin in a way that's a little different than the way we sin. Maybe we catch ourselves uh, wringing our hands and saying, what is this country coming to? And, and while there's no doubt that the pace in which our culture rejects the truth of Scripture and the truth of who Jesus is, the more they grumble against God, the more they shake their fist at God, yes, uh, it's the more lost that they become. But our job is not just to separate and provide a contrast, it's also to illuminate. And I think we miss something here in the star imagery. Here in our little part of Texas, stars still shine, we're not quite deep in the heart of Texas, but they still shine. Uh, but there's some things that seem to dim them, right? So if you are near a bunch of lights, if you're near a city, if you're near a highway, if you have a, a lantern on at your campsite, that's going to make the stars appear less bright. The other thing that makes stars appear less bright, which we have in abundance, is humidity, right? This time of year, we have humidity in abundance. And so those things work together, ambient light and humidity make the stars less bright. Now, so I mentioned that I was in the Army, um, and one of the cool things that happened to me in the Army was that I was deployed to the middle of nowhere, Saudi Arabia, which that, act, that part wasn't cool. Um, the part that was cool was looking at the stars at night. So we were 100 miles from the nearest city, and we, as soldiers, practiced good light discipline. We didn't have lights on. And you could see more stars than I ever knew existed. And there was no moisture in the air. In fact, um, I knew there was no moisture because the flies sought out any source of moisture they could find. Your lips, your eyeballs, your food. As soon as it hit the air, the flies were on it. That part, also not awesome. But at night looking up at the stars, seeing 
millions of stars uh, that were so bright that even when the moon was out, you didn't need a flashlight. You could walk around in the desert just off of the light of the stars. And that's the kind of light that we need to be, light enough to illuminate, light enough to shine so that people can come to our God. So how do you shine that brightly? How do you be that type of light? How do you do like what Daniel says, that your light would shine so brightly that you would lead the lost to righteousness? This passage says that it's through obedience, it's through working, it's through being the kind of church that is unified, not torn apart by arguments and conflict, all inspired and powered by the Holy Spirit working in and through them. And then look at the beginning of verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. So what word brings life? That's the gospel. The gospel of grace. What does it mean to hold fast to it? I think one of the ways uh, this means is that you continually preach the gospel to yourself and to your brothers and sisters. Now, some of you may say, why do I need to preach the gospel to myself? I've already believed, I've already been saved. You know, I walked the aisle when I was eight. Um, Why do I need to keep preaching the gospel? I'll tell you why. It's because you need to be reminded that there was a point in time when you were a sinner, dead in your trespasses, and unable to respond to God but for God in His grace and mercy reaching out to you and granting you the gift of faith. And that you, just like you were then, were totally dependent on God. And today, we are still totally dependent on God to do anything that would produce the type of righteousness that brings the lost to faith. In fact, um, maybe this is just not preaching to yourself. Some of the translations translate holding uh, fast as holding forth the word of life, which really makes this an evangelistic passage, which certainly fits what Daniel 12 says about turning others to righteousness. So that's the second command. Do all things, not most things, do all things in unity. First command was to work out. Not at the gym, but to work out your salvation, to make it evident, to make it obvious to the world around you. That was the what command. The second command, the how command, do all things as a church in unity. Which brings us to the last command, the why command. So I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 16. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, the actual command, the imperative in this passage is not until the very end, which is to rejoice with Paul. Paul, sitting in prison, even though he's innocent, and depending on which imprisonment this is, He's possibly near death, and yet he is rejoicing. 
How does that happen? The answer is at the end of verse 16. It's by having an eternal perspective. Paul is looking far into eternity, to the day of Christ, which likely refers to the judgment seat of Christ, that time when believers are judged, uh, not on how good we are, but our works are judged to determine what type of eternal reward we'll receive, like Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And Paul uses two of his favorite metaphors, mixes them up together here, running a race and working. Running in vain would mean running, working, training, but not getting the prize, running in vain, which is likely the prize of being reunited with his friends, his fellow believers in Philippi, or it's the eternal reward for his work with them, which I think is probably more the latter. Because look at what verse 17 says. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So what is a drink offering? Well, it's actually a sacrifice of wine that a priest would add to go along with the main sacrifice, which is, I think, what Paul is referring to when he says his drink offering would be poured out on the sacrifice of the Philippian faith. It shows Paul's humility, showing his small contribution to the big sacrifice of the Philippian faith. But I think Paul is also referring to his own suffering here. That something that is poured out is actually spent. And Paul has paid a great physical price for following Jesus. He's been beaten, he's been stoned, he's been imprisoned. And I think at, certainly at the beginning of this letter, he's contemplating his own death. So he's writing from prison, contemplating his own death, and why is he rejoicing? Yes, he's got an eternal perspective. Yes, he's looking forward to rewards, but here's what Paul cares most about. It's the spread of the gospel. Back at the beginning of the letter, people took advantage of Paul being in prison, and they kind of stepped in, and he says they preached out of selfish ambition. And yet he rejoiced because regardless of their motivations, Christ was being preached. In the same way, he is rejoicing in the spread of the gospel. And that's something to rejoice over. So this third command is rejoice, even in suffering. Looking forward to that time where we have perfect union with Christ and our fellow believers. So rejoice in suffering, rejoice in the face of opposition. Two things that don't seem to go together. And yet when we do, when we put those things together, we shine like lights in a dark world because that's not how the world reacts to opposition and suffering. And that reaction can point people to the righteousness of the God we follow. Now, so those are two things that together, we've talked about two things that when you put them together, make something great. But this good thing, rejoicing, is coupled with something that's a bad thing, suffering. Um, at least that's how we often think about it. So I conducted a little Facebook poll to get some examples of good and bad things going together. 
Um, and I've got to warn you, there's some weird people on Facebook. Um, I got a lot of answers that I can't say in a sermon in a church, uh, even from my mother, which was really weird. Um, but um, there were some good ones in there. Some of you in this room actually participated in this, so I'll try not to call you out by name. Um, but so these are good things paired with a bad thing or a not so good thing. So someone suggested asparagus and mayonnaise, which I think that's two bad things. So I don't think that really counts. Um, this is weird. Some people volunteered their marriage as an example of a good thing paired with a bad thing. Um, they didn't identify who the bad thing was. Um, so again, I'm not going to mention names, um, but this is one that I might actually try. Um, strawberry ice cream, and this is going to sound weird, and balsamic vinegar. Yeah, so strawberries and balsamic vinegar, I get. Ice cream and balsamic vinegar, I'm not so sure about, but I may, I may give that a try. Maybe not. Um, so that's the third command, rejoice in suffering. The first was work out or make evident or obvious your salvation, both to one another, but then also to the world around you because of your obedience and God working in and through you. The second was to do all of that in unity as a church without complaining or arguing. And the third, and this one is really different than the world today, rejoice in suffering and opposition. I started by saying that this passage answered kind of the so what question. So what would this look like for Bethel White House? Really for all of our campuses, all of Bethel, what would it look like if we were this kind of church? I think it's best summed up by a portion of Jesus' high priestly prayer, which is the prayer that he was praying right before the soldiers came to arrest him to take him ultimately to the cross. So I'm going to read from the book of John, this is verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. So I pray that Bethel would be a church that wouldn't be huddled up it would be out in the world. I pray that we would hold fast every single day to the gospel of life, not just one single time, but with every waking moment. And I pray that God would protect us from disunity. So I began by saying it is great to look out and see a bunch of new people, people that I don't personally know. But there's also risk with growth and new folks coming in. And that is a risk of disunity and dissension. So I pray that we would be a church where we are drawn to one another through the power of the Holy Spirit in the type of unity 
that Jesus prayed for that would draw the rest of the world to him. That's my prayer for Bethel Whitehouse, a prayer for myself and for all of our church. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.